Hi, I'm Alan Boswell, and welcome to The Horn, a podcast from International Crisis Group. Today on the podcast, we'll be speaking once again with Alex DeWall. Alex is the executive director of the World Peace Foundation at Tufts University. He's a renowned scholar on the Horn of Africa region, and he's written extensively on famine. He is the author of Mass Starvation, The History and Future of Famine, published in 2018. He's here to talk with us about the humanitarian crisis in the Tigray region of Ethiopia. Alex, thanks so much for coming back on the podcast. It's a pleasure, though it's sad to be in such distressing circumstances. There's a lot of talk right now about what we uh, don't know in Tigray in regards to how grave the humanitarian situation is, especially the the hunger situation. What, What do we know right now? Well, we know what the situation with food security was like before the war broke out in November. And then it was marginal. There were about a million and a half people, that is um, slightly under a quarter of the population of Tigray, was in need of some sort of assistance, partly because the area is chronically food insecure and underdeveloped, partly because of a plague of locusts. And then we know that there were perhaps 900,000 people displaced because of the, the armed conflict. And the the government of Ethiopia is holding to those figures. It has uh, in-need figures of about two and a half million. But what the humanitarian information systems are telling us is that the situation is likely to be worse. And there are really two major reasons for that. The first is the FUSENET, the Famine Early Warning Systems um, Network, has estimated that um, perhaps half of Tigray's population is either in crisis or emergency uh, phase, which means that they are in desperate need, not yet famine, but um, death rates among children are likely to be rising. And we also have reason for alarm because we simply don't know. There is a big informational black hole. And the reports that we are beginning to get, especially over the last week, from the Federation of Red Cross and Red Crescent Societies, from the UN Office for the Coordination of Humanitarian Affairs, are that the situation is much worse than has been reported in terms of malnutrition, in terms of access to essentials, that is, uh, water, medical supplies, etc. And indeed, that uh, there is every sign of an increased mortality rate, especially among children. And of course, this conflict hasn't been going on for too long now. But but generally speaking, how long might it take for sort of famine conditions to, to sneak in when, when a conflict like this breaks out and there is such limited access? Well, the the, the background to food security is relatively encouraging because there were good harvests. Farmers had savings, which they had invested in microcredit institutions and in, and in the banks. They had assets in terms of livestock. So one would normally expect a, a single harvest failure would not be enough to bring about famine conditions. It would take several. However, under the current conditions, what we see is cause for very serious alarm because there's every indication of uh, what we would call starvation crimes, the destruction of objects indispensable to survival. Every report from Tigray tells of the systematic ransacking of hospitals and clinics so that um, there are virtually no medical supplies. 
because the electricity supply has been cut off, then uh, townspeople have very little access to, to a pumped water. They have uh, to, to get water from elsewhere, and often that is, that is contaminated because the banks have been shut. Uh, it's not possible for farmers to access their, their savings or, or, or their microcredit. And perhaps most serious of all, uh, what we hear is everywhere that the uh, forces, particularly the, the Eritrean troops that occupy a very substantial part of Tigray, have been ransacking food stores, carting away everything they can, they can carry and uh, killing livestock and, and, and also burning or rendering food inedible by pouring water on it. And, and that... Uh, systematic destruction of what is required for people to survive, along with mass displacement, means that the situation is likely to be much, much worse than it would otherwise have been. And, and, And so in that informational black hole, under normal circumstances, we would have a, a projection of deteriorating food insecurity, but we have reason to believe that actually it is much, much more sharply deteriorated than that. I want to talk more about this role of Eritrea, which you've also written about in a bit. But first, when it comes to access, you know, you and Ocha has released this map of Tigray and red means no access. And it's basically painted entirely red with with a few little spots of exceptions. You know, the WFP, uh, they announced a big breakthrough deal, they called it, a couple weeks ago. So, so what's going on there? Is the access situation getting any better? And what's, what's really preventing the access to these areas? Um, the best estimate at the moment is that about 20% of the population can be accessed for humanitarian assistance. And senior humanitarians are saying they have never seen worse access than this under comparable circumstances. Um, the principal two reasons for the lack of access. And number one is simple insecurity. The fighting is continuing. The war is not over, um, despite what uh, the government of Ethiopia has said. And secondly, there are uh, four belligerents there. A, A permit issued by the government of Ethiopia is only good for two of those belligerents, the the Amhara militia and the the federal forces. And they control only a relatively small part of of, of Tigray. The major part is controlled either by the Eritreans or by the Tigray Defence Forces. And obviously, um, Addis Ababa-issued permits will not necessarily be recognised in those areas. The other point to make about these permits is that there is a sort of process of death by bureaucracy. Yes, permits are being issued, but they are being issued in a, in a manner that actually ties down the agencies in interminable bureaucratic processes and allows them piecemeal ad hoc access. So there's one process for personnel, another process for supplies, and the two are not necessarily coordinated. The permits are given for individual named aid workers. Sometimes these people came on short-term contracts and have already left the country, or they are people who were working in those areas before as development workers. They don't necessarily have the skills required for emergency assistance. It is actually almost impossible for a humanitarian agency to have a systematic, comprehensive response to the humanitarian needs 
with this type of drip drip of arbitrary individual permits. Um, and what this points to is a strategy by the government of Ethiopia, a well-honed strategy that has been practiced over the decades of giving the humanitarians just enough to keep them cooperative, to keep them uh, at least pretending to be happy while denying them um, the ability to do any real substantive humanitarian work. So there's been some discussions at the UN Security Council. Uh, what's happened thus far and what exactly could the UN do given this situation? There is a UN Security Council mechanism. Resolution 2417 was adopted almost three years ago. It's on armed conflict and hunger. And it was designed precisely with this type of scenario in mind, where armed conflict and or starvation crimes are creating serious humanitarian emergency or even famine conditions, and where information systems may be failing because of lack of access. And what a resolution 2417 does is really two things. First of all, it's an early warning system. There is a requirement on the UN Secretary General to report to the Security Council when he, or perhaps in future, she fears that uh, armed conflict is leading to widespread widespread food insecurity. And it also is an accountability mechanism. The UN has to report. And the, the resolution um, doesn't introduce new law, but it reminds everybody that starvation and hunger as a method of war may be a war crime. Now, Resolution 2417 um, hasn't yet been translated into exact mechanisms for bringing an issue to the attention of the Security Council. And there is some debate ongoing as to how that should work. But it certainly gives discretion to the Secretary General or to the head of, of UN OCHA to do so. And a situation such as Tigray today is absolutely the case in which uh, 2417 ought to be invoked as a matter of urgency. And I think this would be important not only in ramping up the political pressure for access, but also in sending a strong signal to all the belligerents that if they continue to obstruct access, they continue to uh, commit the types of, of abuses that create starvation, they will be held accountable. Now, before we go in and talk about what possibly can be done about the situation, because you've painted not only a grim picture, but also just a very complex one, especially with the role of Eritrea. I'm just wondering, you have a whole chapter in your 2018 book on, on mass starvation about Ethiopia no longer being the land of famine, which now looks uh, probably a bit sadly premature. Why does this issue keep reemerging in Ethiopia, do you think? There is a long and sad history of uh, famine in Ethiopia. It's is a has been a very poor country um, under the uh, regime of Haile Selassie. It was an exploitative feudal regime. It was then a, a communist regime in which the military government also used hunger as a weapon of, of counterinsurgency. Under the nearly 30 years of EPRDF, there was one um, terrible occasion in which the, the, um, the government did something similar in, in the Somali region. Um, it, it, it created a man-made famine. But one of the uh, key features of the 
TPLF stroke EPRDF political program was a general commitment to poverty reduction and, and, and famine prevention. In fact, when um, Melisinawi was first asked in his first press conference after taking power in 1991, what is your ambition for Ethiopia? He disarmed the International Press Corps by saying Ethiopians should be able to eat three meals a day. And Ethiopia had a major commitment to uh, famine prevention, to uh, a, a safety net that not only provided emergency assistance, but also kept farmers on their land, kept pastoralists from having to sell their livestock. And this was extraordinarily effective. Just a few years ago, uh, in, there was a very serious drought in Ethiopia, 2015. And within a couple of weeks, the Ethiopian government mobilized $500 million of its own money for emergency relief. And it rolled out uh, a, a relief program supported by the international community that reached more than 10 million people. And successes don't tend to get a lot of publicity, but this was a remarkable success. And it, it shows the capacity of the Ethiopian government through its poverty reduction programs and through its emergency response for dealing effectively with humanitarian emergencies. And it's tragic that the crisis in Tigray has not had this kind of response, but it makes the, the government in action doubly culpable because it is quite clearly capable of responding. And just while we're on that note, you've been accused by the Addis Ababa government of you know, being too close to the TPLF, being being biased. You've obviously been very vocal about this this issue of the humanitarian crisis as well as the the conflict in general. Um, and 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 you were close with former Prime Minister and TPLF leader uh, Mele Sinawi. So can you just re- respond to that charge that this biases you in your in your commentary? I think just about every uh, dispassionate analyst of Ethiopia has been branded by the government as a supporter of. TPLF, and they are really dredging the bottom of the barrel in order to come with people uh, from the, the scholarly community who will support their, 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 their point of view. So I'm in very good and very broad company in being labelled in this way. But more, more seriously, um, yes, I admire the TPLF, EPRDF uh, commitment to famine prevention, as I just mentioned. I also uh, admired their strategic approach to to um, supporting the African Union and, and, and foreign policy with one or two uh, major exceptions. But the specific reason why I dedicated my book, The Real Politics of the Horn of Africa, to the late Prime Minister Melis Zanawi was that Melis and I had a series of debates over the years in which we agreed on some things and disagreed on others. And he promised that when he retired from office, we would have an occasion to continue this debate in public. Now, that was never actually possible because he died. So in that chapter on Ethiopia in my book, I tried to put his side of the argument and mine. Uh, and I focused there on the challenge of state building because I felt that he was very serious about it. I felt that the EPRDF had a very serious project of state building. It was one which had many criticisms, and I articulate many of those criticisms, but I felt that argument needed to be aired in the context of uh, my 
counter-arguments about the kinds of threats that state building was facing in the Horn of Africa. Um, I've also criticized in public and private the, the EPRDF government on several occasions. In fact, I published, when I was at Africa Watch, I published the first human rights critique back in 1992. I um, wrote in large part a, a case to take the Ethiopian government to, to the African Court on Human and People's Rights over the expulsions of Eritreans. I um, was active in supporting the pre-election debates in 2004-2005, which was a platform for the opposition. And I think those who who regard me as an apologist for TPLF really should um, read my writings and, and and see the points on which I support them and the points on which I don't. You've also been been talking with people on the ground, um, and I'm wondering what what insights you've you've gained from those conversations. Can you just recount those for us, specifically just how people are living right now, and what's it like for people who did flee into what is now TPLF held rebel territory? My friend and colleague Mulugeta Gebrehiwat, who was a former member of TPLF, he was a critic. He resigned in 2002 and set up the Institute for Peace and Security Studies at Addis Ababa University, where actually Abi Ahmed got his PhD. Um, he is in the mountains of Tigray, and he has called me a, a couple of times. And uh, what he first of all described in his in, in his first call was the extent to which the uh, the people of Tigray, the ordinary people, had mobilized to resist the attacks from the, the three different forces that, uh, um, that attacked them. Um, and he also described the, uh, a particularly important element in the war, the role of the, the drone attacks in disabling the Tigrayan defenses and making it possible for them to be overrun. More recently, what he has detailed is the uh, fast-developing humanitarian crisis in the areas which are increasingly substantial, the areas controlled by the Tigray Defence Forces. And his um, expectation is that if major relief is not possible, and equally and perhaps more importantly, if a ceasefire, an end to hostilities, is not possible in the coming three months, then the crisis is going to intensify and be prolonged because the the planting season comes in approximately June. And if the current situation of widespread fighting, um, lack of any access, lack of any security for farmers to to, to plough and plant their fields, if that continues, not only will the current levels of hunger um, continue into the, uh, the next year, but they, it, it, this will worsen. He says very candidly, famine is coming. So, so let's talk about uh, the, the, the humanitarian access issue again then. Crisis Group has called for immediate unhindered humanitarian access, uh, as have many others. The TPLF has also just come out with an eight-point uh, demand list, and one of those is also uh, humanitarian access, as, as you would expect to hear from them. Um, you've also mentioned, you know, the fact that uh, Eritrea is such a prominent actor on the ground. That would, I assume, very complicate the access issue as well, as you've as you've pointed out. So, so what would need to happen, given you know where we're at now, given that there is no ceasefire, given that we have such an array of actors, including including silent ones in the form of Eritrea? What what do you think would need to happen, given you just laid out a very short three month timeline? I think there needs to be a very candid recognition at the highest level that this is 
a, an internationalized civil war, that what it requires is a political settlement uh, among the, the different belligerents. And that the first step for this is a ceasefire, that is a properly monitored ceasefire, that can allow for humanitarian access and the stabilization of the humanitarian situation. We cannot have any more pretenses about this. We cannot uh, fall in line with the Ethiopian government pretense that this was a law enforcement operation that is over. We cannot fall in line with the Eritrean silence over their role as a major belligerent. We have to recognize that this is a civil war uh, with different belligerents and it needs to be treated as such. And the, the irony of this is that the African Union, the United Nations are perfectly capable. They have all the types of diplomatic um, tools, the types of humanitarian tools for responding to a crisis such as this. It is just a question of political will at all levels. And, and can I ask, what are the levers that, that are there? Um, is, is this really something that humanitarians can resolve or basically it will require uh, something that's much more political, um, given that you, know, you basically require the permission of the Ethiopian government uh, to, to, to access these areas and possibly the Eritrean government? There's a truism that there are no humanitarian solutions to humanitarian crises. The solution has to be a, a political one. And the Ethiopian government is um, actually in a very weak position at the moment. It relies on the presence of Eritrean forces um, for the control of what those parts of Tigray that can be controlled by the um, Ethiopian-Eritrean coalition if the Eritreans were to withdraw. Uh, Prime Minister Abiy would have to face the reality that the Tigrayans control most of Tigray. Um, and this will be the future. He has to negotiate um, with, with, with Tigrayan representatives. The other great weakness of, of the Ethiopians is that their economy is uh, in crisis. It's approaching a condition of free fall. Uh, with humanitarian crises in other parts of, of the country and an escalating cost of basic commodities in Addis Ababa and elsewhere in, in, in the country. So the Ethiopians are going to have to come to the, the Paris Club of, of Western creditors and the uh, Bretton Woods institutions for a financial bailout uh, in order to avoid a, a, an economic collapse. And these issues shouldn't be treated in isolation from one another. There needs to be an, an overall package, a coordinated approach to doing several things, um, saving Ethiopia from, from this type of crisis, because the bill is going to come to uh, Western nations, so they have some legitimate leverage over um, Ethiopia. And uh, dealing with the Isaias uh, Afawaki aspiration for an axis of autocracy that links um, Asmara, Addis Ababa, and he hopes Mogadishu as well. These issues need to be handled at once. And right at the center of these issues is the need for a humanitarian ceasefire and negotiation in Tigray. Now, you've talked a lot about Eritrea thus far and just how it complicates the, the, the situation. What's, what, what do you think is President Isaias's endgame here? Isaias um, is a man of utter ruthlessness and perseverance. 
Um, Eritrea, as we know, has no constitution, no free media, no political parties, no uh, real rule of law. Every critic has been silenced. Every rival has been consigned to indefinite uh, detention without any contact with the outside world. Isaias's playbook is one of disregard for any norms and principles and institutions of the multilateral order. Um, and sadly, um, he was able to get out of the, uh, the, the, the box in which uh, the African Union, the United Nations had put him, um, chiefly through the, frankly, the naivety of Abiy Ahmed, who made a, a peace deal with Eritrea, which was very welcome. But then he allowed that peace deal to become uh, implemented solely on the terms of Isaias Afwaki, who saw it as a security pact against Tigray. So what does Isaias want? Well, he wants his own political survival, his own political relevance entirely on his terms. And his way of going about this is to create facts on the ground, to be completely ruthless and to allow the world to come to him. And sadly, over the last um, couple of years, he has succeeded in this regard. So uh, measures need to be taken to put Isaias back in his box to make it absolutely clear that he cannot export his brand of politics to neighboring countries. And that if he is to be uh, an accepted member of the international community, he has to abide by some of those very, very basic norms that he has been flouting for so long. And then on the, the TPLF side, I mean, it, it, it's quite clear the TPLF seems to have massively miscalculated um, in the run up to this to this conflict. What do you think a reckoning for the TPLF will look like and, and what do you think their, their, their future will look like? It's quite clear that the, the leadership of the TPLF over the last um, few years was reckless. It, it, it engaged in, in some bravado and brinkmanship that was irresponsible. It had a very legitimate fear of uh, the, the Eritrean agenda, uh, but it, it, it raised the stakes inside Ethiopia um, by denying the legitimacy of the federal government in a way that was very provocative and uh, un unhelpful. Um, the, it says that it, um, it admits that it fired the first shots in the war, but said that that was a, a preemptive action. The people of Tigray have been grievously let down by that leadership, and there is no doubt that the Tigrayans will go through a process of assessment and reckoning, and that uh, the, the, the Tigrayan uh, political scene will be radically changed. What is clear is that the administration put in place by the federal government in Mekele has no credibility and no capacity. And that that reckoning of the future of, of uh, Tigrayan politics will have to be undertaken by the Tigrayan people themselves. And that, of course, can only happen in the context of uh, ceasefire and stabilization and, and to, to the humanitarian crisis. 
Now, you, you've also written a lot about how humanitarian aid, food aid, you know, sort of is inevitably uh, instrumentalized by armed parties to conflicts. Is, is that inevitable in this case? Should it be, how much of a concern should it be that if food is let into, you know, TPLF held areas and there are deals with TPLF for that access, that that, that will almost inevitably also help fuel that rebellion? I think it's it's vitally important that, that a, the major humanitarian program that is required is fully and transparently monitored. So and, and conducted in the context of um, a ceasefire and political negotiations. In that context, it will be possible to minimise the, the in, any distortions or harms that may be done by the the provision of of that assistance. Closing off, and we're looking ahead to this three-month window that you've pointed out in the very, very severe situation. Um, But we've also painted a political picture in which if Prime Minister Abiy had Eritrea withdraw, that that would have significant uh, negative implications for the control on the ground for the federal government. And yet Eritrea's role is also a, a massive, massive problem when it comes to allowing humanitarian access because their their role isn't publicly acknowledged. I mean, just specifically on that issue, how do we, how do we, you know, untie that knot? How does the international community untie that knot rather than just get stuck in it, given how, how little time there is to actually get access? We cannot put the the burden of this on the humanitarians. It is too much to ask frontline humanitarians both to deliver uh, essential life-saving assistance under these very, very difficult situations and also to engage with these complex politics. It simply can't be done. So what is needed is political leadership at the highest level, and that means the United States. The U.S. is going to be chairing the U.N. Security Council uh, next month. Uh, The the U.S.-U.N. team is scarcely in place. The permanent representative is not yet confirmed. But this has to be a number one agenda item for bringing to the U.N. Security Council as soon as it possibly can be. And the mechanisms are there. And the analysis is there. The, the, um, the Europeans and others are lined up to assist. The African Union has been pretty hopeless, but um, quietly the Africans do share the same analysis. They have just been intimidated into silence. And so if this, this doesn't happen, because we haven't really seen that high-level politics that, that you're talking about um, thus far, You've talked about it, but just just what do you think this would look like? How bad would this get? What What's the sort of situation we'd be seeing if the status quo does continue more or less as it is without one of without a substantial change of the sort that that you've been discussing? That we are going to be truly horrified when the truth comes out from Tigray, when we get firsthand reports by independent witnesses of the starvation crimes and of the other crimes, the massacres, um, the rapes, the the sheer cruelty inflicted on people, then the outcry is going to be unstoppable. The call for uh, war crimes investigations, accountability, prosecutions is going to grow ever louder. And that agenda driven by public outrage 
Um, certainly it will drive a, a political response, but we have a very short time a reasoned political response can actually seize the initiative and set the agenda. Well, uh, thanks, Alex. I'm, I'm sorry it was such a depressing conversation, but, but we appreciate your time for coming on once again. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening. The Horn is a production of the International Crisis Group. If you want to find out more or read our reports, find us at crisisgroup.org. Once again, I'm Alan Boswell. This episode was produced by Maeve Francis. We'll be back in two weeks with another episode.